0: Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. The song of my people. You see, we'd sing these words every morning when we'd wake, and I'd sing the song when I went to sleep. My family would write them on the doorposts in our home. It was to be written on our city walls. We were to teach it to our children, and our children's children, and our children's children's children. It was meant to be a defining anthem for us. The words are, hear or listen, Israel. The Lord is God and the Lord is one. Means you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. Now, I share that song with you because these are the words that I sang the very morning that I'm going to tell the story from. See, I had woken up early because there was a celebrity in town, the man named Yeshua. And so I woke up early and to travel to the city. See, it was a few hours' journey, and there were several people I met along the way some strange folk, really. There were some strange women, some strange cultists, some strange foreigners. <laughs> Grinds my gears, really, Uh, because they didn't belong in the city that God gave us. They don't belong. And so when I passed that man sitting under the old ragged olive tree with the broken branch on its side, and and on the left there was this this heart-shaped knot, and this man was sitting there begging for my well-deserved earnings, (laughs) I scoffed. Surely God had put him there for a reason. Surely he did this to himself. He can find out other ways to make money. Why does he have to beg for my earned income? And so I kept my chin up and I kept walking. Annoyed, I, uh, I put that situation behind me. Because now I had gotten to the city and now I, as I entered into the gates, I could see crowds of people gathering. And that meant I knew where to go. So as I pushed through and I made my way through these crowds of people, I finally got a glimpse of the man everyone had been speaking of, this Yeshua, you call him Jesus. And as I saw him, I saw the people around him, the scribes and the Pharisees. And of course, that, that made sense to me. If the man that everyone calls the Messiah came, of course it would make sense he would surround himself with the religious elite. That made sense to me. But what didn't make sense is just how unsettled they all seemed to be around him. They all seemed to be testing him. One of the questions that they asked was, um, teacher, of all the commandments, Which is greatest? Now that's a fair question. But it's also a little bit of a trap because if you think about it, there are 613 commandments in the Torah and to say one of them is the greatest is kind of like saying that the rest don't matter quite as much. But Jesus, he didn't take the bait. Man, he said, Shema Israel, the Lord our God, The Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. It was a song I woke up singing this morning. It was a song that was supposed to be an anthem to our people. So, oh man, Jesus, what an answer. But he didn't stop there, you see, because he continued. He said, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself all of the law and the prophets hang on these two commands this man he was truly a great teacher and he actually had so much more to say that day but but the question that was seemed to be imprinted on my heart and the one that seemed to be it felt like somebody actually was pressing into my brain the entire walk home was this who is my neighbor who is my neighbor because I am pretty sure there are plenty of people I'm not even sure I'm willing to love. I've always interpreted that verse to be speaking about my fellow countrymen. But Jesus, he he didn't seem to treat it that way. So who was it? Who is my neighbor? Is it my fellow countryman, or is it is it the foreigner that I passed up? Is it in my enemy? And of course, it was right at that moment, right at the moment that that thought passed through my brain that I came up to an old, ragged olive tree with a broken branch and a heart-shaped knot on the side. See, I had a decision to make. You know, I think think we all want to know what's greatest, don't we? right? Like, I mean, even Generation Z has a phrase for this. It's the GOAT. It's the G-O-A-T. It's an acronym for greatest of all time. Is it Michael Jordan or is it LeBron James? Is it Tom Brady or is it Aaron Rodgers or is it Joe Montana? Is it, is it the Beatles or is it the Rolling Stones? <laughs> now, I know a lot of you are probably thinking like, oh, I have something to share with him because I know the answer to this. I know the greatest, right? Like, you want to enlighten me with, with what the answer is to those questions. But this isn't a new fascination. See, 2,000 years ago, people were asking similar questions. Like in this story that we just sh- I just shared, uh, the people were asking, what does God consider to be the greatest? In order, what is the best way, what is the greatest way for us to live? What does God want us to focus on? And as we heard from Jesus, he said uh, the greatest way to live all hinged on two commandments, which hinged on one word. And one word was... Love, love. By the way, my name is Cale. Uh, I'm the youth pastor here. And uh, no, I'm not Jewish. And no, I didn't get to watch Jesus speak 2,000 years ago. Uh, no, I fooled you, right? No. Um, no, my goal in that, my goal in sharing that story with you like I did, is to do the best way I know how, how to put us in the ancient mindset um, that would have been seeing these words or hearing these words from Jesus for the first time. Because these commands that Jesus gave, what he called the greatest, well, he wasn't making those things up on the spot. He wasn't just coming up with them. In fact, he was quoting his Bible. He was quoting something that the Jewish people have been singing for the past thousand years, every morning and every single night. In fact, uh, what may have been a little bit shocking uh, would have been that he held up another command as equal, one of the 613 laws to love your neighbor as yourself and he added that alongside this ancient prayer but as we mentioned both of these commands they hinge on one word don't they that word is love and So we're going to be talking a little bit about that today, and, uh, and 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 let's admit it, right? Like we love the word love, don't we? We we love the word love because it makes us feel nice, right? We hear songs on the radio like Danny Gokey's "Love God and Love People," right? Like we nod our heads and we go, "Yeah, that's great, that's awesome." We we agree with that. We enjoy singing about love. We enjoy dreaming about love. We enjoy watching movies and TV shows about love. It's it's warm and it's fuzzy and it makes us feel nice. We like that. But what if? What if we're operating on the wrong definition of love? What if we're operating on the wrong system? Because the truth is this word, this word is kind of like a seasoning that we can add to anything, but unfortunately it's starting to lose its flavor. Like for example, when we use the word love, we, we could use that word to describe just about anything and still mean different things. Like you can love your job and you can love your children. You can love your family and you can also love a TV show. I can say in a conversation, I love my wife, and in the same conversation I can say I love pizza, and it doesn't actually sound that weird. (laughs) However, if I meant the same thing when I used those words, uh, you would seriously question how dedicated I am to my wife, or you would just think I'm nuts and a little bit too obsessed with pizza, right? Even in secular culture, love has become a a defining value. You might see it on signs or billboards in the yards. It's, it's, many would say that love is even the best way to live. You know, I uh, recently saw a TV show. It caught my eye. It was called Married at First Sight, and uh, the concept behind the show is actually not really a new one. Uh, it's been around for thousands of years. It's called Arranged Marriage. It's been, it's been around, but this t- show, they take supposed marriage experts uh, and then they take these two couples that they determine are like soulmates. They're made for each other. They're perfect together. And then they put them together and they host a wedding. But what happens is because it's a TV show, of course, drama unfolds. People scream at each other and the experiment inevitably fails. But what's fascinating is that 100% of the couples on this show are looking for the same thing. They're looking for love. They want to fall in love. They want to be with someone who makes them happy, someone who completes them, someone who is is that they couldn't love. And that's how they define love. It's all about finding the perfect person who made them happy. Which is why most of the couples on the show end in divorce, infidelity, and, and even restraining orders sometimes. But the sad thing is they all wanted the same thing. They all started off with the same goal, to find true love. And they all hoped for and even wanted the best. And the problem, I think, is that the church has become just as reflected or as as similar as this, this individualistic goal that has the society that it's supposed to be a salt and light to. And often, even as Christians, we act as if happiness is the ultimate goal of life. In fact, we might even conflate happiness and love with one another without even noticing it. So we have to ask the question, what is love? What is love? Because according to Scripture, it is absolutely crucial that we get this one right. In fact, Scripture tells us that uh, love is the only tangible evidence that you are even truly a follower of Jesus. In uh, first, or John 13, 35, um, Jesus says, By this everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. First John 4, 8 says, Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. And of course, Matthew 22 and Mark 14, where the story that I just shared with you came from, uh, it's, Jesus tells the Pharisees that all the, long, all the law can be summed up in loving God and loving others. He calls this commandment the greatest of all time, the goat, right? Which is why we need to define it, which is why we need to define love, because I promise you this, if we have the wrong definition, then we're going to have the wrong action. And it's going to lead us into a world of hurt. So let's talk about it. And to do that, I think we need to take a look at where Jesus is pulling this commandment from. And so... Like I said, because Jesus isn't making this up on the spot. So I want us to take a look at Deuteronomy 6. We're going to be reading verses 4 through 9. Um, Now in this story, uh, in Deuteronomy 6, Moses is talking to a young generation of Israelites, a new generation who are about to enter into the promised land. And he retells the story to them about how Israel had failed the test in the wilderness. And he calls this new generation to step up and to step in to the new land. So let's pick up together. In Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, I'm going to be reading from the CSB. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. These words that I am giving you today are to be on your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you are walking along the road. When you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on your doorposts of your house and on your city gates. Now, for the past 3,000 years, the last half of this verse, the last half of this this, uh, segment, the Jewish tradition has been pretty much the same, actually. These words from Moses became a prayer that they would literally Bind to their foreheads and bind to their hands. And then they would pray them regularly. Uh, In fact, Jewish people still do this today. I got a picture of it. And so this man, you can see, uh, he's bound to his arms. If you look on his uh, left bicep, you see a little box right there. What that box is, is it's a small box that contains this exact verse. It's on a tiny little scroll with tiny little letters and it's rolled up and put into that little box as well as two other verses, one from Exodus, one from Deuteronomy. And the same goes on his forehead, that little box on his forehead, same idea. It's this scroll with this verse. They took this commandment very literally and they bound it to themselves and they would pray this every morning and every single night and it was to be written on the walls, it was to be taught to their children. This was a very serious deal. And because Jesus affirms this and he says this actually is the greatest commandment, I think as Christians, we need to think about this too. We need to pay attention. So let's take a look back at the verse. And I want to start off by taking a, a, to focus in on that first word. See that word, uh, listen, I'm actually going to teach you a little bit of Hebrew today. <laughs> Don't worry, we're not going to teach you too much. Don't worry, I'm not going to make you sing the whole song that I sang before. Uh, instead, I just want you to learn one word, and it's this word for listen. The Jewish word, the Hebrew word, rather, is Shema. Shema. And so I'm going to have you guys all say it together with me in three, two, one. Shema. There you go. This word, Shema, it's... Uh, it, the basic idea behind this is what your ears do, right? It's, uh, it's to hear. Most translations say to listen or to hear. However, in Jewish thought, this word meant so much more than just sound hitting your eardrums. It meant so much more than that. Uh, in fact, in Hebrew, you could only truly shema if you listened, you paid attention to, and then you obeyed. Tim Mackey, a Hebrew scholar and founder of Bible Project, he said it this way, he said, in ancient Hebrew, there is no separate word for obey, meaning to carry out the wishes of someone who knows better than you or has authority over you. In the Bible, if you want to say, I will listen and do what you say, you say the single word, shema. In Hebrew, listening and doing are two sides of the same coin. In fact, that's why uh, prophets like Jeremiah, who were going to speak to people on God's behalf, he could say things like, the Lord has sent you all of the servants and prophets again and again, but you have not shemad. You have not listened, nor have you inclined your ear to shema, to hear. This is how Jesus could say things about a rebellious people in Matthew 13, 14. He'd say, they have ears, but they don't Listen. Or this is how I, uh, as we have been going through this series on Revelation, how Dan and Chris could talk when they speak the words of Jesus, he would say, if you have ears, then listen. Then listen. See, it's because Jesus expects a response. He doesn't want this to just go in one ear and out the other, as we might say. So I think one of the questions we need to be asking ourselves today, actually, is we need to be asking ourselves, are we listening Are we listening? Are we listening to what God has to say to each and every one of us individually? Then let's Shema. Shema. Listen, Israel. Okay, by the way, pause for a quick second. This is real short. I'm going to interject here. By the way, you are all included into God's chosen family. Now you are all adopted in as sons and daughters. This is what Jesus and, our, and Paul say in the New Testament. And so, and because Jesus affirmed this as being the greatest commandment, you now can actually read this as if it was part of you. So I'll say instead, listen, God's chosen people, y'all. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. Okay, there it is. There's your definition right there. This is how we can love God, or this is actually what it truly means to love our God, that is. Uh, Christopher Wright, he actually wrote a commentary on this, and he said uh, that you could interpret these words as love your God with total commitment, total self, to total excess. I couldn't define it any better. Come on, that's your definition of love right there. It's to give total commitment, or total commitment, total self, to total excess. This is the type of love. This is what God defines as love, and this is the type of love that God asks of us. See, you, we see that to truly love God is to give him our everything. It means we listen to him. It means we allow him to determine what's best for our lives. It, it means we give him our full commitment, our full selves, our hopes, our dreams, our bodies, our minds. And to give him these things to total excess. Basically without limits. This means we pay attention. We pay attention to God. We listen to him and let him determine what's best for our lives rather than to follow our own heart. Which, by the way, scripture tells us that our hearts are the most deceitful of all things anyway. So, pretty unreliable. It means that we make time for him instead. It means we obey him In fact, this is why Jesus could say things. He would say things like this. He'd say, if you love me, then you'll keep my commands. Then you'll obey. And in our opening story, what does Jesus obey from us? What does he, or I'm sorry, what does Jesus command for us to obey? To love God and to love the people that God loves. I've heard it said before that uh, if you are totally committed to God, then you will absolutely be totally committed to God's mission And what was Jesus' mission on earth? What was was his mission? It was to bring the kingdom to this world. It was so that the whole earth may know Jesus, our Christ, and that humans would be put right between God. uh, uh, A relationship would be put right between God and humanity. So we find that to love God with total commitment, total self, to total excess, means that we also adopt his mission. Okay, so I may have wounded a couple of you. You might be like, oh, goodness, man, I feel like you're, you're beating up on me a little bit. Or at least maybe it just sounds crazy. You're thinking like, all right, yeah, that sounds a little bit intense, Cale. Sounds a little bit serious, right? Like, isn't God asking a lot from us? To which I respond, no, 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 no. Actually, God isn't asking a lot from you at all. Believe it or not, he's not. He's asking everything. He's asking everything. See, to Jesus, it's all or nothing. This is why Jesus could say things to people like, go and sell everything you have and come follow me. This is why he could say to others, let the dead bury their own dead. Come follow me today. This is why he could say uh, things like, pick up your cross and follow me. You see, that's not just some poetic line. Jesus is saying, pick up your execution rack. And be ready to live a life of self-sacrifice. Because that's what it means to follow me. It's what it means to follow Jesus. To live like he did. So we see that love isn't about some warm, fuzzy feeling. It's something so much more. It's not about conjuring up all these emotional responses, but rather, love is active love is giving and love is sacrifice. Love doesn't say, what can I get? Rather love says, what can I give? What does Paul say about love in 1 Corinthians 13? Well, he says, love is patient. Love is kind, love does not envy, it is not boastful, and it is not arrogant, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not irritable, and it does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth, it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and love, it never ends. Don't let the familiar, familiarity of this passage, which by the way, we, we like to call this like the wedding passage. And funny enough, it actually has nothing to do with weddings at all. In fact, it's more about what we do as a body, of, as the body of Christ, how we love one another. That's what it's more about. Don't let the familiarity of this passage distract you from the fact that Paul is clearly not saying love is just about some feeling that you can have. Right? It's not about some warm, fuzzy feeling. Rather, Paul says love is about sacrifice. You don't believe me? Read it again. Love is patient. That means that love will sacrifice its own time frame in order order to wait for somebody else. Love is kind. That means that love will sacrifice whatever it's feeling in order to display sweetness to those around them. Love does not envy, which means if you see somebody that has something that you want, You will sacrifice that feeling or that that desire in order to celebrate that person and celebrate what they have. It is not boastful, it's not arrogant, it is not rude, it's not self-seeking. In other words, love is, it's it's not about you. It's not about you. Remember love, it, it doesn't ask, what can I get? Love asks, what can I give? Love is active. In Paul's vocabulary, and it is in Jesus's as well. And just like Jesus, Paul says love is about sacrifice. Okay, so you might be saying to yourself, all right, Cale, but aren't we saved by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone? And I'd say, yeah, yeah, absolutely, unequivocally, yes. Absolutely. You are saved uh, you, by grace alone. That means you cannot earn your way to get into heaven and you cannot discredit yourselves from Jesus' saving work when we inevitably fail to be perfect. You are right. We are saved by faith alone. But how do we define faith? I mean, think about it. How do we find faith? I would say it's believing that Jesus is the Son of God, the saving King, fully God and fully man, who died for the sins of the world and who was raised from the dead and now sits at the right hand of the Father. But a belief in who he said he was without any form of response isn't really a belief at all. I mean, even James, Jesus' own brother, he calls this type of faith a dead faith. Think about it with me for a second. Say, say you were, uh, you knew there was some person who was wandering the desert for days, and they were dying of thirst, dehydrated, and they come across this building with a big flashing neon sign, and it says, "Delicious refreshments inside. Come on in. You're welcome." Now it'd be ridiculous for that person to say, "Yeah, I believe that, and totally, absolutely," but then wander around the desert, dying of thirst, complaining how thirsty they were, and then eventually dying of dehydration. Even if that person swore up and down that they believed it, would you believe them? Probably not. Because if they truly believed it, they would have followed. They would have gone in. Because true belief always results in response. In obedience. Do you have ears? Then listen. Shema. Because God has a mission and he wants you to be part of it with him. See, Jesus says, he says, The thief has come only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come so that they may have life and have it to the full. See, Jesus, he does want you to live the best life possible. It is true. He absolutely does. The problem is that we often want to define what that actually means for ourselves. We like the idea of living life to the fullest, but we don't actually like Jesus' definition. A call to radical self-denial and self-sacrifice. But the thing is, Jesus absolutely knows that this is the best and most satisfying, most rewarding and fullest life possible. And he wants what's best for you. But I think we still might say, we still might say, "I, I I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can do what Jesus is requiring. He's requiring too much for us. I don't know if I can do this. I want to experience him, but I don't know if I can do that, what he's asking of us. It's too much. It's impossible. And I hear you. I hear you. It sounds impossible, doesn't it? And that's because it is. It is impossible for you to conjure up this kind of love on your own. You can't do it. Not for God and not for others. You cannot do it on your own. But I have good news for you. See, God never expected you to do this alone. He's never expected you to do it alone. Because God, by his own definition, is self-giving. He does not need you, but he chooses to give everything in order to be with you. One of the greatest lies I think we could believe it comes from the devil, and it's that God is angry with you and, and that he doesn't love you anymore because of what you did, that he's turned his back on you and he's disappointed in you. But it's a lie. Yet we all fall into it sometimes, don't we? But Jesus, he proves that God loves you despite your rebellion. Yes, you are the deceiver. Yes, you are the cheater, the fake, the one who continuously turns your back on God. Yet Jesus loves you anyway with an absolutely relentless kind of love. And he begs you to join his mission because it is literally literally the greatest of all times. He gave his life for you and then he gave you his personal presence when he promised the Holy Spirit. See, God is with us. And this is the deep well that we can draw from. This is where we find our source of love. See, we can love because he first loved us. Now, in order to take God's mission seriously, to love him and love others, it requires us to let go. It requires us to let go of control and rely only on his power and his love to sustain us. And it's once you do that, once you do that, then and only then can you experience the greatest life possible. The fullest life possible. And you will experience God in an entirely new way. And begin to live a life with love, with total commitment, total self, to total excess. You see, God has given everything in order to be with you. So it only makes sense that we would give everything in return. Do you have ears? Then listen. Shema. Now as we wrap up, uh, the truth is I don't know how this is going to affect you. I really don't. Uh, That's the Holy Spirit's job. But maybe, maybe for you, you're realizing now that you've never really experienced this kind of life to the fullest. You've never really experienced God's love the way that Jesus promises it. And maybe you find that you miss Jesus. And that's a little bit confusing because you've never really known him. But you realize that you want to know him. Well, I have good news. Because Jesus misses you too. And he wants to be with you today. He wants to start a relationship with you. And he wants you to know him. And he knows that it's not going to be perfect. He knows that you're going to drop the ball. But he doesn't care. He wants to know you anyway. Because with Jesus, when you drop the ball, you can always pick it back up. Or maybe you miss Jesus because you absolutely have known him and and now you feel like you're distant from him and it makes you sad and it makes you feel a little bit guilty and and you're not sure how to feel about that, but you miss him and you know this. And let me tell you, that's a good thing. It's a good thing. I miss Jesus too sometimes. Because there are so many things to distract us from what's best. There's a million other things we could be doing to keep ourselves busy or to distract us. There's a million other shows we could be watching or sports channels. There's a million things to, to occupy our brains to be distracted. And we f- may find that we need to be intentional because it's really easy to just tune out. You know, I've been married for, for nine years. Uh, and one thing that I have found to be the most painful things to my wife is when I'm present, I'm there, but I'm not really there. Do you know what I mean? You know, like, like I'm physically present, but my mind and my, my thoughts and myself is completely lost somewhere else. And I could claim the excuse that it's been a long day or maybe I'm just in a bit of a funk. But do you hear what I just admitted to you? Do you hear what I just admitted to you? That I can be feet away from the human being that I love most in this entire world and that's so close to me that I, could, that I could go speak with, I could hug and I could kiss and I could be with, but I'm tuning her out because of something I've seen on social media or some YouTube reel that's got my mind spinning. And that's with someone I can physically see, someone I can hear, someone I can touch, someone who stands feet away from me and only asks for my attention. So it's not surprising, right, that we might do that with God as well. We might find that we need to be intentional. I mean, even in in marriages and in families, we set up date nights and vacations and time in our own days to invest in our family. Why don't we do that with God as well? And I know, unfortunately, we often get in our minds that meeting with God just means to be like 15 minutes in the morning or something like that, or 15 minutes at night. And we get this idea that, that that's what it means to just meet with God. And you just got to make it work. And don't hear me wrong. Like, absolutely, God has chosen to speak with us through his scriptures. Absolutely, I believe that we should be in his word daily. Yes, but we often forget that we can spend time with Jesus in every and any moment with our prayers and in our hearts You see, Jesus says in Matthew 28, 20, he says, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So if you miss Jesus, good. It means you know how wonderful he is. So it's time to come back. Carve out time. Make an effort. Be with Jesus. Because he's always been with you. Maybe you've just been tuning him out. Or maybe you're realizing now that you could be doing a little bit better at a job of guiding the next generation of believers towards a fulfilling life with Jesus. That like Moses, when he was standing before the promised land to, to giving this new command to a generation of new believers, uh, you now have the choice to step up and to step into action. You know that when Dan or Chris stands up here and they dedicate children to God and we promise as a church to partake in the raising of those children, to point them towards Jesus, you know that we're not actually just saying words, right? Like we're making a vow. We're making a promise that we are going to care about the next generation and that we are going to do something about it. It may be simple. Maybe just get involved in that family's life. Get to know them. But maybe it's volunteering in children's ministry occasionally. Or maybe VBS. We still have signups. Or maybe you're brave and you want to serve teenagers with me in Apex. Why? Because you've committed yourself to Jesus. And that means you've committed yourself to his mission. Maybe it's a step with your own children even. Maybe it's a step with own, your own children. Maybe you want to take a step towards raising them in this way. You know that this prayer that Jewish people have been praying for 3,000 years, you know that, uh, that Jesus affirmed as the, one of the greatest things we can do, or is the greatest commandment of all? You know that we can pray that prayer as well? You know, I, uh, for the past year and a half, I've prayed the same prayer. I'm going to show it to you. There's nothing magical about this prayer. There's no perfect words or anything like that. But if you want to see it, this is, this is something I pray for my son and my daughter every single night at their bed. And so I, I, I go to, let's say, my daughter's room, and I stand beside her bed, and, or I kneel down beside her bed, and I say, uh, dear God, thank you so much for this little girl. Thank you so much. She is such a gift to me. God, I pray, that, I pray that you would give her a sweet dreams tonight and, and that you give her a good rest and then wake her up tomorrow to be one day closer to, loving, to seeking to love you with all of her heart, with all of her soul, and with all of her strength and that she seeks to love her neighbor as herself. God, I also pray that, that she would know that she has a papa who loves her both on earth and in heaven because, God, we know that you are our heavenly papa. God, thank you so much for my little girl. She is such a gift to me. You know, this prayer, it's a simple prayer, but if you were to pray this every night, if you were to say this each night, not only are you asking every single day what God has already declared as the greatest, but you're also teaching the next generation what God values as well. Are we listening as parents, as guardians, as the church tasked, With raising this next generation, are we listening? Shema. Shema. You know, Eugene Peterson, uh, he he said once, he said, the day teems with possibilities. Jesus' command rouses us out of a sleepy timidity. He doesn't tell us to go out into the world and to conquer it. He calls us into a yoked companionship with himself. He doesn't ask us to do anything that he doesn't promise to do with us. We are not so much sent as we are invited along. You see, Jesus, he is with you. You are not alone in this. Jesus died for you even while you were an enemy of God. And now you have the chance, now you have the opportunity to show your love to your neighbors. And yes, even to your enemies. To be united with Jesus in his life and his mission. And hopefully, Hopefully now you're realizing that you can actually be part of this mission. Now, obviously, this isn't an all-encompassing list for how uh, we can love God and love others. Maybe you're being led to do something else. You know, I, 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 I confess that I kind of forgot that our SWEPs week was coming up until we had the announcement. Maybe God's leading you to do something with that. Or maybe something else. I don't, I don't know. But I ask that you share it with someone today. I ask that you share it with someone who can hold you accountable because this week, it starts a new week. A new week for you to, to learn what it means to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. To understand what it means to be united with Jesus in order to love with total commitment, total self, to total excess. To understand what Jesus means when he says, I've come so that you could have life and have it to the full. So I ask once more, do we have ears? Then let's listen, let's shema, and let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your overwhelming, extraordinary love. God, that you've promised to be with us and to to empower us to live a life of love that you don't expect us to do this alone, but rather you gave your son to die for us that you know that we fall short and you know that we're going to make mistakes and you know that we're going to fail inevitably just to, to, to do this, two commandments. But God, I thank you. I thank you for paying the cost and I thank you for sending your son and enduring the cross. God, be with us this week as we seek uh, to fulfill this command, as we seek to seek you out in every moment, in every place. God, you are good. Give us ears to hear. Pray this on your name, Jesus. Amen.